श्री गुरु वैष्णव गुरु परंपरा की जाए कौन भक्त वृंद की जाए और प्रमाण सो दिस मॉर्निंग वी एंड द डिस्कशन विथ द स्लैंग ऑफ कृष्ण स्लैंग ऑफ ट्रिनवाटा वर्ल्ड विंड ऑफ बैड लॉजिक हॉट एयर फॉल्स आर्ग्यूमेंट एंड Krishangi asked about the difference between identifying Trinavarta with with that improper use of intelligence in one sense and uh, Kamsa whom we also talked about in terms of other than being fear personified being use of intelligence and so we differentiate between an academic approach to krishna consciousness to understanding krishna consciousness in a in a what might be called a quasi spiritual approach in the form of uh, of mayavad or other similar doctrines and uh, it's perhaps worth noting the uh, or underscoring the uh, importance of the danger of uh, mayavad I'd like to say that Prabhupada uh Gita in particular but on all of his books all of his writings and all of his talks really there was as you are quite familiar with I'm sure quite considerable emphasis on the downside of certain basic tenets held by the Mayavad philosophy or Advaita Vedanta and the fact of the matter is that without uprooting this without uh, bringing an end to this kind of whirlwind of double talk fast talk and circular logic as as we would see it of of mayavad there's no question of becoming a devotee this is this has to be crossed over so appropriately probably in his effort to break new ground for for chaitanya mahaprabhu's mission and uh, gather new, new new recruits it's very appropriate that he emphasized as he did the uh, uh, shortcomings of mayavad we know that when chaitanya mahaprabhu went from puri to vrindavan he went through varanasi which is a stronghold for mayavad philosophy and uh, that's where on his return he defeated prakashan and the sarasvati so in one sense it's significant that the road to vrindavan Uh, passes through the um uprooting this kind of misconception there's no question of being a devotee in fact in one place probably emphasized that uh, one should be so careful to avoid this that it can corrupt even an uh, advanced devotee he wrote something something like that so it's important um and uh not that i think that any of you have much difficulty with with the, with the idea it's amazing because if you hear the uh, theistic version of logic theistic conception of vedanta from the onset practically it's almost impossible to turn towards the mayavad conception and the converse is true also if somehow you were introduced in that way it's difficult to turn one to the other side 
I've told the story before of how one of Prabhupada's godbrothers, Dr. Kapoor, told me the story of his own conversion because he was one such person who was pretty well committed to Advaita Vedanta. And uh, some of the disciples of Bhaktisiddhanta, other disciples were preaching. Sannyasi in particular tried to convert him and was not successful through argument of scripture and logic and so forth. And he told him that uh, in the end that, all right, I, I cannot defeat you, but Aguru Maharaj will be able to, so you should come and meet him. So he was a smart, intelligent young man, educated, and that Sannyasi was thinking he'd be a good catch to get him in our mission. And uh, so he came and he had a darshan scheduled with Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur who came in the room and spoke to him alone. And he told me that uh, Prabhupada Bhaktisiddhanta came in, Dr. Kapoor was sitting there, Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur sat down and spoke for 45 minutes about Brajalila, the Leela of Krishna in the Braj. And he said he spoke with such feeling and, and, and enthusiasm for that. Not touching on any point about Mahavad philosophy, any logic, uh, difference of, uh, of the scriptural interpretation and so forth, without touching on any of that. And without asking Dr. Kapoor if he had any questions, he just spoke for 45 minutes on the Burj Lila, got up and walked out. He said, I was so impressed with that, uh, his feeling for Burj Lila, that I, I had to continue on hearing from him. So... He uh, uh, expressed that later on, and so I was invited to tour, join the tour with him, and for six months I was on tour, traveling and hearing from him every night. And every night after his lecture, he would ask, as he didn't when he spoke with me personally, Dr. Kapoor said, he would ask, are there any questions? And every, every evening I would raise my hand to ask a question. And every evening he would ignore me, and then, as if there were no questions. And after six months, he said, I was, I was converted. <laughs> and um, he said, then I had the occasion a little later on to be on, in, in service in some area where the leading, one of the leading uh, acharyas of the Shankar, Advaita Vedanta, Sampradaya, and they have consistently, on an ongoing basis, there's four of them. And so one of them was touring in an area, and the king this was the times when still there were feudal-like kingdoms in India. The king was a, a disciple of this Shankaracharya, so a program was held at the king's palace. And so Dr. Kapoor said he thought he'd go, and he would. It was kind of like a final test for him. Like you know, he'd heard all this Gaudiya philosophy, and somehow he had been converted. But this was a chance to kind of like make sure, and he was going to ask a question of the Shankaracharya. So. Anyway, the, the talk was over and the Shankaracharya asked any questions, and so he began to ask questions, and readily he was acknowledged. His questions were answered, and then he'd ask her another one, and he ended up getting in a little bit of a debate with the, the Shankaracharya, and it went back and forth, and so he really knew both philosophies, and he was amazed at how much he had absorbed the, the philosophy of Gaudi Vaishnavism when his questions were never answered, and it was never directly had a chance to, to discuss the issue. And so at any rate, it came to the point where he asked the Shankaracharya a question, and the Shankaracharya answered by what Dr. Kapoor said, 
call it described shifting the ground. And it was one of those questions about, well, basically you, you say that there's only one, but there's, there's no world, but, but there is a world, but there isn't, but, uh, you know, kind of a, the whole I was talking about in, 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 the, in the logic of Advaita Vedanta. Dr. Kapoor was like uncovering it and saying there's a big hole here. And at one point he knew that from the Shankaracharya's answer, if he were to answer and say, ah, oh, but you've shifted the ground, we were talking about this and now you've shifted and that the king's men were getting a little testy as it, as it was and they had, you know, their swords and those, <laughs> in those days. Said I could have lost my head if I had asked that question, but my heart was satisfied that Saraswati Thakur and Gaudiya Vaishnava and Chaitanya Mahaprabhu had given a comprehensive explanation of, of Vedanta. I knew I could have had him, so to speak, but they would have had me in a sense, and I had service to do in this Sadaka Deha, so I didn't bother to to ask any further. So at any rate, it's very it's very important um, and proper appropriately emphasize that it's I mean to say it's not just you know why don't you let up on those people you know kind of sometimes people sometimes have that reaction from reading Prabhupada's books and on and on he takes every opportunity he can to take kind of a pot shot at, at Mayavad philosophy and uh, as I say there's a good reason for it because unless this is uh, uprooted there's no there's no question of becoming a devotee so the slaying of Trinavarta it's kind of an ongoing Fair yeah, for for Gaudiya Vaishnavism in terms of the preaching, the topic comes up quite often. And so, with that, then proceeding in the uh, unfolding of of Krishna Lila, there are a number of events that take place before another actual uh, demon appears on the scene. But nonetheless, the Braj uh, Gokul Krishna was uh, appeared in Gokul. And there he met with the Putana and uh, Shakatasura and Trinavarta. And so the atmosphere was becoming troubled. And again, Vasudev had given warning that uh, the king was uh, performing atrocities and searching for all the children born with a certain age and so forth. And for an astute person, it was apparent that Krishna had already been singled out. So, thoughts were brewing a little bit in the mind of Nandamaj as to what, what to do exactly to take care of the child. Meanwhile, Krishna was still quite young and, and he did the uh, occasion of the Indra Yajna where everyone gathered for the sake of a sacrifice to satisfy Indra, the god of rain, which is important to agriculturalists uh, for their livelihood. He was at home more or less alone with his mother and he created uh, mischief and ultimately, as you may recall, she had to tie him up to uh, a mortar, a grinding mortar, and this resulted in his pulling down the twin Arjun trees and while they are not uh, demons per se, uh, nonetheless, they caused a disturbance in Vrindavan. They, they caused more fear in, in the mind of uh, Nanda Maharaj for the sake of his 
his son. And so the thought that had been brewing came to the foreground, and it was also shared by Upananda and uh, other brothers of Nanda Maharaj, that being, that thought being, perhaps we should move. This place is, seems to be troubled, and so perhaps we should move on. And they were, you know, a cowherd community, so cows were grazing and, and taking grasses, and sometimes then they would, you know, they would have to be moved regularly in a general sense. Anyway, so they they were certainly a more mobile type of community than uh, in a city community. Kind of a nomadic uh, tribe of of sorts, on the move, and there's something to be uh, made of that in a positive sense. That um, if we ourselves are to become Krishna conscious, then we have to be a little ready to move. We have to be ready to move in a substantial sense, in an internal sense, to, to change, really. It's not about staying the same, but but changing, bringing about a transformation in, in our lives. And so if we are to keep up with the Brajalila, we have to be a little bit um, mobile ourselves. Krishna says, Sāvadāman, prajāmāmi, kamsaranam braja, surrender and come to me. And he moves around himself. So he says, now I'm, it is apparent that he's over here, we should go there. We may go there, and then we may hear his call coming from another direction, say, I'm over here now. So we have to go there. And then he may move again, and, and so forth. So we should be aware that if we make connection with Krishna consciousness, then things may change in our lives radically. We should be prepared for that. Primarily, of course, as I say, internal change, but externally, then we may end. I mean, I've never thought I'd be here, <laughs> for example. <laughs> never ever dawned on me in many other places that I've gone all over the world in the, in the call of service to Guru and Goranga. So a little willingness like that to, to move a little bit uh, of detachment is necessary. And while it's, um, well... We say, we speak about the, the movement of the cowherd community, and they did move from Gokul, they crossed in covered wagons and floating across the Jamuna with the whole of the uh, encampment, every all their goods and whatnot, all their cows and calves, and they came across the Jamuna from Gokul to the other side, and they settled in Vrindavan near Govardhan Hill, where there was abundance of grasses and and other natural items that would be um, very useful for the for the cowherd community. Gobardhan means to to increase the cows, to, from which the cows could be nourished, and they were cowherd people. So moving to an area where there was abundant fresh grasses and so forth, that was uh, in their interest in a very practical sense. Go means cow, so they were kind of on the go, if you will, moving according to the. Uh, necessities of the cows. We at the same time are on the go, but in a different way, because go also means senses. So we are on the go, we are always following the call of the senses, and uh, that is not in our interest. We have to convert that to following the cows, so to speak, in an esoteric sense. And 
So at the, while at the same time movement may, we should be prepared for and change and so forth, we're really concerned primarily with internal change rather than changing the scenery. In a modern society, this is important, changing the furniture, changing the scenery. The grasses are greener somewhere else, and so we uh, uproot and move on, on those uh, grounds. And a modern society with its technology and uh, industrial society and so forth very much facilitates this. I was thinking about this point the other day at Audaria and how we live there very simply and and really all of our needs are are pretty much met. We have some visitors who bring some things that we would need otherwise. But when they bring 50 pounds of rice, they don't need to come again that soon in order for us to stay in, in, in rice. For example, and we grow vegetables, and we have milk, and and so forth. And I was thinking, how in ancient times, it was people stayed put more because there was not as much facility to move around. Without that kind of facility to move around, the mind, I would imagine, tended to settle. And because it didn't, it wasn't bombarded with the parents, appearance of opportunities. I could be doing this. I could be going there. If the price of oil was to skyrocket, then it would be difficult for someone like Ernest to think, I could be, you know, back in Finland right now. <laughs> if, if the plane fares were $10,000 rather than $1,000 a flight and so forth. So the modern society kind of lends to this being on the go, if you will, and, and gives an appearance of giving us facility and opportunities and and so forth. But it may, oftentimes it's perhaps an opportunity to miss the point of life. And, um, and uh, so this um, life of the senses, to be on the go and to be, in, and to be able to do things faster and be in a hurry and so forth, is not necessarily an advantage. It doesn't necessarily improve, as, as you're all thoughtful people and you understand, it doesn't necessarily improve the quality of life. So at any rate, the cowherd came in and he did move, and they gathered in a council, and all of the elders decided that this, this, there was a good reason, in this instance, to move for the sake of the cows, and many inauspicious things were happening. And somehow, by the grace of God, and they thought, by the grace of God and the force of their own piety, which caused God to reciprocate with them in that way, so many life-threatening uh, circumstances arose in relation to Krishna, the, the prize, son of the community, this, the, the heir to the throne, the son of Nanda Maharaj. Somehow or other, he was able to um, come out un unscathed in the midst of these very inauspicious circumstances. So, at any rate, for different reasons and good reasons, they thought to move on. And so they crossed the Jamuna, they made an encampment there in Vrindavan and built their settlement. And so Krishna and Ram, they were a little older now, talking, walking. In fact, by, by this time, we're several chapters in from the killing of Trinavarta. Um, they're now in Vrindavan, and, uh, and uh, they're at the, what we might call Aksesh Kumar, the end portion of the Kumar Lila. Kumar Lila is the childhood Lila of Krishna, after which he turns into, into boyhood. And then adolescence, of course, and youth. He leaves, apparently leaves Vrindavan and stays in a, in a state of eternal, perpetual youth in all of his leelas in Dwarka and, 
in Mathura. So here is just at the end, Seish, his end of the Kumar Lila. And so in him, uh, very, uh, his, his Dharma starts to manifest. He is, after all, like his father and the rest of the community, a cowherd by nature. We've talked about cows before and, and their, their innocence and uh, their sense of uh, dependence and their, their capacity to give as well. Most giving animals in uh, existence for a little grass which is free, then they give so much. So he was a cow herder. His name is Gopal, uh, sometimes he's called, which means the protector of the cows. Therefore, it started to come out, his interest in that. And he would go and, with Ram and imitate his father, rounding up a couple of cows at a time, and just a young boy and child, really, and uh, learning how to properly herd them two at a time and then four at a time and, and six at a time and how to pacify the bull and and so on. And news of this was rippling back to Mother Yashoda, how he was liking to spend time a little bit outside of the house and and his father would go into the forest with the cow, so he would go with him and and uh, meet other people other in the, in the community, cowherd men and jump on their laps and climb up on them. And it was very uh, kind of a precocious child and and never afraid of anyone and very uh, friendly and so forth and very, very fond of the cow. So as news about this development was rippling back to Mother Yashoda, she had some concern as mothers will always like to see their children to be younger than they are and resist their maturation and, and so forth, which leads ultimately to their leaving the home. So she resisted this for some time, and she chastised Nanda Maharaj, how you're letting the boy out like this, he's still so young, and he's going in the forest, and granted he's following with you, but those are big cows, and he's a small boy, and so forth. So Nanda Maharaj acquiesced to her request to keep him at home, and stopped from taking him out, him and Ram both, and and then they would just cry and be unhappy. So it was a foregone conclusion that they had to, the time had come. Now they should be allowed to begin to actively participate in the very uh, Dharma of their life. Again, in ancient times, then one's material life was more or less established what you would do. You lived in a certain area, your father did a certain thing, and um, there weren't a thousand opportunities to hop on a plane or a train or to go here, there, and, and everywhere. And, and uh, so, as unappealing as that might sound to some of us with so many opportunities and so forth, it did serve to settle an issue that is important without which settling it's difficult to get on with one's spiritual life. And that issue is, what am I materially? I've talked about this before and how there's some advantage, it would seem, to having such things settled in advance, rather than, I know in my country, adolescence extends up to at least 30. And uh, in ancient times like this, especially in India, it, these issues would be resolved more like at about six or eight. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So that kind of in place and settled, then one could get on also with one's spiritual life. At the same time, we do find that with the extension of adolescence and the opportunity to take risks and so forth, people are more willing to jump into spiritual life, which often then ends up in, the, in them kind of going ahead a little too too fast and and so forth and biting off more than one can can chew. Still, there's some advantage to that. Nard likes to say to having taken a risk and gone forward, and, and even if you fall back, you're better off because you've gone this far. So there's different ways to think about it. But at any rate, Krishna's dharma was settled, and of course, even long before that uh, early age, but it started to manifest in this time. Mother Yashoda and Nandamaraj had to then officially acknowledge it, recognize it, and so they call for a festival, naturally, to celebrate Krishna's coming of age in terms of taking care of the calves, not the cows, but the calves. So he was given a stick and a flute and a rope and dressed and decorated and anointed with tilak and so, and charity was given to the Brahmins and so forth. And, and uh, notably, he was offered uh, shoes because at this age, of course, he would be running barefoot. I mean, at this age, age, he was barely beginning to identify with being dressed at all. Mother Yashoda would dress him, and then he would take it off, and uh, then settle with half of it, and, and which half, you know, would, would depend on his mood of the day and so forth. Just, just kind of coming into a change of thinking and disposition where clothing started to matter. And so, officially dressed as a cow herder, given all the accoutrements uh, and necessary uh, paraphernalia, festival enjoined, he was also offered shoes for walking into the forest and so forth. And notably, he refused them. He said, no, one cannot be a cow herder like this and wear, wear shoes. It's in Gubinilil Amrita. This is a very extended and uh, touching uh, Part of Krishna Leela, his denial of of the shoes, much to be learned from that. I like to say that we cannot enter into the into the cowherd Leela with our shoes on. We have to leave something, many things uh, behind. At any rate, he was officially um, initiated into cowherding, calf herding. So he had a group of calves that he would take care of, and and naturally the other young boys who were of a similar age when the king performed the ceremony for his own son, they also came and participated in it. Their parents had recognized also this was their situation, their sons who were coming of age. So Krishna had many companions now. And he started to herd the calves with Balaram and his friends. And on that occasion, they, of course, were familiar with every calf and every calf's name, and Krishna would deal with them very affectionately, go to a calf and grab her around the neck and whisper something in her ear that made no sense whatsoever. After all, you can't really talk to cows and expect that they listen, but out of affection, he would, uh, as, if, as if they could understand everything he said, and of course they could understand the spirit of his talk, his affection, and they were so affectionate to him. He would scratch their necks and give them fresh, fresh uh, tender shoots of, of grass, and as I say, whisper things like, do you want to see your mother now? Into their ear as if they could understand. And, and um, 
And it's important to note, of course, that uh, as you know, at Audaria we take care of cows, and and uh, we also whisper such things in their ears and offer them fresh grasses and and treats. And we may appear a little little eccentric to some in that regard, but we're following in in the line of Krishna, his dharma, and. It so happens that this cow herding is uh, is very important to Bhakti. In fact, it's mentioned in Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu that one of the angas or limbs of Bhakti is the worshipping of sacred trees. And in his commentary on Rupa Goswami's verse, um, pointing this out, Jiva Goswami says that this also includes taking care of cows, scratching their necks, offering them fresh grasses and so forth, circumambulating them, taking care of them. So it's actually an, an anga of bhakti itself. Very charming, very endearing, and very easy to remember Krishna in, in the course of engaging in that. And it is uh, directly one of the 64 anga limbs of, of bhakti. So Krishna has shown the way in this regard. And at this time, in the midst of his innocence, his youth, uh, at very uh, young age, he was a bit uh, naughty, and after all, he was racing out to take care of the cows, and so without permission of his mother, and he did other mischief that, of course, we've not discussed, but much of that concerning the leela in which he fell the two Arjun trees when he broke the butter pot, and and so forth. And Mother Yasoda has to chast had to chastise him. He would go and steal from next door milk and yogurt and butter and so forth. Basically, with the idea that things acquired by stealing are better than uh, those acquired otherwise. So, very mischievous and, and uh, naughty and so forth. And, uh, and, uh, and calves, for that matter, are a bit like that as well. So, if you want a calf to go one way, you can be sure she will go the other way. And it's quite an art, then, to, to learn to how to herd the calf and, and get her where you want her to go. So similarly, it happens that in our devotional life, we have a bit of this kind of um, youthful um, kind of uh, disobedience and wanderlust and the grasses are greener and, uh, and this is an immaturity. And... This is not uh, helpful for our bhakti. The time when Krishna began calf herding, Kamsa was upset. Now, by this time, of course, Bhutana, Shakatasura, and uh, Jarnabharta and uh, had all been slain. And so he came up with an idea of his own that, in different ways, his agents had tried to kill Krishna. And he surmised that if any one of you, amongst his other others in his assembly, have noticed wanting, as he did at this time, to pick out someone else to attempt to, to kill Krishna, if any of you have noticed, there's a particular animal that he is very fond of. And they said, yes, he likes the calves. You're seeing he's very attached to the calves. So he said, then, what is the salute? What is the conclusion? And came forward Vatsasura, the calf demon, who appeared as a calf. 
So he was commissioned by Kamsa to go and enter into the herd and with the idea that Krishna was affectionate to the calves, dealing with them affectionately, and he could get him alone on the side and then do his mischief. So he entered into the herd. But Krishna knew his calves very well. He knew every one of their hearts. They were all unalloyed devotees, not ordinary cows. And so seeing this extra cow in the herd, hardly did she blend in. Either she stuck out, stuck out like a sore thumb because he was relating to everyone on the heart level. And this fellow's heart, although appearing as a calf, was not favorable. So he said to Ram, Have you seen that calf before? Do you he whispered, do you recognize that one over there? And Balaram said, it seems some, something is amiss here. He doesn't, I don't recognize him. And Krishna said, is a demon. So then uh, Krishna asked what to do. Balaram had to think for a moment and Krishna volunteered the answer. I think we should, I should slay him. Balaram said, could be a problem. Could be a problem socially. They were astute for young young boys at that age, could be a problem socially and religiously. What This is a real, real dilemma because killing a calf, I mean, nothing could be more heinous than that, more sinful. And at the same time, this, this calf was, was uh, demonic. So uh, Krishna, this Balaram kind of question, I don't, it could be, could be a problem if you kill him. It could be a mark against us. And we are cow herders after all. We, you know, we're calf herders right now. How can we kill a calf? And so this is, of course, the logic of, of, of Kamsa by which he thought that uh, Ratsasur would succeed. Even if they recognized that he was a demon in that form, how could they possibly kill him? One time I was with Prabhupada in Vrindavan during the Govardhan Puja, an annual festival celebrating Govardhan, that which furthers the cows and that which furthers the, the, the life of the Braj Bhaktas. So annually we worship uh, Giriraj and create a, a hill of prashadam and so forth. And this way, different ways these festivities are observed by the devotees. Govardhan Puja, celebrating the annual, the, the historical eternal event of Krishna's demonstrating himself to be non-different than the hill and so forth. So on this occasion, a big, uh, some kind of prashadam-like cake or mountain was, was made. We were in Vrindavan. And and the devotees made little, some of them made little like sugar cows, but little sweets in the form of cows, and put them on the hill, decorated. And so the hill was brought in and offered to Prabhupada, and and they said, Prabhupada, the cows are are sweets. You know, you can eat one of those. And Prabhupada was shocked. He said, I cannot eat a eat a cow. Not possible. So he was like, oh, we made a mistake. Just see how insensitive we are, even in the name of devotion and celebrating on the Govardhan Puja, the day of the cows and, and the Govardhan Hill and so forth. The prophet was, was just a very foreign idea to him. Could not eat a cow. Anything, even just a sweet in the form of a cow. So this is what Kamsa was thinking. That how can he possibly kill a calf? They're so dear to him. 
And so Ram voiced that this is, could be a problem if you kill the calf. Socially it could be a problem. Religiously it could be a blemish on us. We're cowherders. But Krishna thought, he replied, no, he said, actually, if I kill him, his real form will show up. And still will be apparent that he's a son of Diti, not Aditi, that he'll be of the demonic, uh, of demonic descent. And then he'll take his real form, and then it will be clear. So he got Balan Ram's approval, and he approached that calf, and then grabbed, grabbed by the heels, back heels, and the tail, and swung him around, and threw him into a tree, and crash down he came. Yes, of course, he took his own form, and Krishna killed in this way, effectively, this. Um, this tendency not in a young sadhaka where Krishna consciousness is budding, this tendency to avoid uh, commitment to Krishna consciousness and taking responsibility and so forth and uh, resolve for making advancement and kind of shuffling one's feet and kind of partly taking place and dancing around the idea and so forth. So we're all affected by this to some extent. And Bhaktivinoda Thakur has thought to caution us that study this Vatsasura Leela, contemplate this, and have the courage to ask Krishna and see how this this is dear to all of us. This is kind of, hmm, you know, that's me. I'm kind of <laughs> Krishna consciousness. If I do that, Krishna consciousness will take over my whole life. So it's like it was difficult to kill a calf, something, even a demon in the form of a calf. This is a problem for us. We have to commit ourselves to Krishna consciousness. We have to, like Krishangi likes to tell us, it's not a hobby anymore. <laughs> it's no longer a hobby. <laughs> we came to to flirt with Krishna consciousness, and we found that it it has an agenda. And as I like to say, we we are on it. And so uh, we have to. Uh, reach the, con- the conclusion of this flirting is that this is it. We have to be captivated here and consume and take, uh, make some commitment. That will be good for us. We will be so happy to the extent that we do so. And it, this will come on different levels. Some of you have already crossed over uh, some of uh, the initial hurdle in that regard. But we must go further in this regard. And the contemplating the Vatsasura Leela, that uh, Bhaktivinoda Thakur has blessed us, that, uh, that that will be helpful. Have the courage to slay the calf of youthfulness uh, and, and the thought that, well, I'm young and so I can put this off. There's time. I'll get around to it. When I'm older, I'll take the Krishna consciousness. It's this kind of, this kind of thing. Prabhupada used to say, old is close to death. And who can say that they are not close to death? <laughs> can come at any time. And how we live our life is really what our death is, is all about. And it will be tested at that time. So this is, this is what the whole thing is about. It comes for everyone. When a cl- close person or an advice of a particular passes on, oh, the whole community is, is sobered for a moment. Just see. And we cannot imagine, actually, what uh, what takes place at that time as death actually comes upon us. What what a powerful influence that is. Um, we should prepare ourselves. Is the idea? And Krishna consciousness has come to give us full opportunity to make preparation. Sounds, in one sense, a little morbid. 
to spend one's whole life preparing for death. But as I've said, life is about death. That's what it's all about. Srimad Bhagavatam is about death. The whole book, uh, it's all about death. Raj Parikshit Maharaj asks what to do at the time of death, and Bhagavatam begins. It culminates in the Rasa Leela, where the gopis die. Die to their material life, and uh, all prospects of of that for a young girl by entering into the Rasalila with Krishna. So, this slaying of Atsasura is about, about being mature in Krishna consciousness and slaying the youthful, in a sense, that uh, kind of misbehavior and, and uh, this is the, kind of the intoxication, if you will, of youth that allows us to think, well, we've got, we've got time, we can, we can put it off. This is uh, affecting our our progress. It's hard to kill a calf. <laughs> Think about this. Then, of course, that, that Leela progressed, and um, practically within well, the same time, at the same age, along came another demon. Kamsa sent the brother of Putana. Putana had two brothers. Bakasur and Agasur. First Bakasur came. Form of a big uh, heron, a big, like, water bird. Posted himself along the banks of the Jamuna where Krishna would come with the calves and, and his cowherd friends. With his beak, like, open like this, posing as a mountain and a cave, which later on his his. Brother Agasur also tempted in another way in the form of a serpent. The thought being on the part of Bakasur that Krishna would just walk in and, and he would devour him. And sure enough, that's what happened. Krishna walked in and the heron closed his beak and devoured him. And the coward boys, Ram included, passed out on the scene, went un- unconscious. And the thought that Krishna had disappeared into the mouth of this, uh, this demon. But inside, Krishna, well, he started to perspire. It was hot in there. So he was feeling hot. And the heat that he was feeling and exuding was troublesome to Bakasura. He, like, ate a hot pepper, something like that. I think someone has given the example in, in Shastra, like a frog eating a baby snake, thinking it was a, was a worm. Snakes eat frogs, poisonous snakes. So it was a problem for him. And so he vomited up Krishna after his innards had been fried. Krishna was not digestible for that fellow. (laughs) He thought he could swallow him up and, and digest him, but Krishna gave him a good case of indigestion. Then coming out, he grabbed his upper beak and his lower beak and split him in half. Finished Bakasur, much to the dismay of, of Kamsa. So this fellow should also be slain. And Bhaktivinoda Thakur has identified Bakasur with deceit, uh, with deception, with duplicity. Saying one thing here and another thing there saying like, yes, I would be happy to have Maharaj at the temple, but unfortunately the circumstances in Finland are just don't permit that. 
Anywhere else it would be fine. Then saying the same thing in America. Yes, we would love to have him come, but uh, the circumstances here in North Carolina are just not suitable. It's this kind of thing. This is not good. <laughs> this is the influence of Bakasura. We should be simple. Not that we should be foolish, simpletons, but but simple, not the complicated and weaving, net, weaving a network, a path of half-truths and so forth, and only to be caught up in that and found out. This is one of the qualities of sattva guna, simplicity. Simple, straightforward, and so forth. And Bhaktivinoda Thakur has highlighted in this regard uh, the deceptive, the duplicitous, that so-called guru who gives out so-called higher teachings to people who are not qualified. If you read what he says on that, you can understand. Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur is a very strict follower <laughs> of Bhaktivinoda Thakur. He's written about it, I believe, in maybe uh, Sri Krishna Sanghita, an important revolutionary, actually, uh, book in Gaudiya Vaishnavism. We should be careful about this. There are people that are that are uh, making a livelihood by selling immature devotees who have the tendency to think grasses are greener somewhere else and la- are lacking in their commitment. They can be deceived. If we do not slay this Vatsasura, it will be easy to be de- to be dis- deceived by Bakasura and think and hear, oh, your guru didn't tell you about this, about what what is your sarup? How unfortunate. Hmm? I happen to know that. I guess he or she doesn't know that. Oh, that's that's a shame. After all, it's important, wouldn't you think? I could, of course, give it to you, but the implication would be that you'd be better off being my disciple and leaving this person, other person, behind. What does he or she really know about Krishna consciousness if if he doesn't know this and if he knew it of course why wouldn't he tell you isn't isn't that what it's all about yes of course the reply is that's what it's all about but everything in due course everything in, in time that's what it's about when I'm able to do bhajan which is performed on the platform of Advaigyan Tattva it means real bhajan there's something to do before bhajan that's very Krishna conscious Mahaprabhu didn't begin with this. He began with Cheto Darpana Marjanam. Therefore, again, that's why we're having these discussions about Krishna Lila with regard to the demons. Not that this is the only aspect of Krishna Conscious Krishna Lila that we discuss, but it's good as we can see from these discussions to emphasize them and the cleansing of the heart. Preparing oneself that one is deserving of that type of spiritual practice. Mahaprabhu's own Leela is showing. At the end, he did this kind of thing. At the end of his Leela, at the end of Shikshastakam, the last three verses, he is into that kind of culture directly in Bhava and then Prem. Not that it's no, there's a semblance of that, of course, before Bhava Bhakti. But really, if you want to talk about sadhana, sometimes they will say, well, it's sadhana. It's mentioned in the section of Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu of Sadhana Bhakti, Raganugas, that you should have two bodies. And the Sadaka Deha, an external body and an internal body, and you should be cultivating both. It's mentioned there. Yeah, there are different degrees, stages of sadhana. 
also. And also for that matter, bhava-bhakti is a form of sadhana as well. Although it is bhava-bhakti and distinct from sadhana-bhakti, still there is a sadhana. So shall we just take the sadhana of bhava-bhakti and make that the sadhana of, of sadhana-bhakti? Does that make sense? If so, then what is the difference? So no, there, there should be an emphasis in sadhana-bhakti on sharanagati, putting this, like I like to say, stage on which Krishna Lila is performed in place within the heart. To be a committed person, again, this is Sharanagati, to slay this Vatsasura and just accept everything favorable for Krishna consciousness and reject everything unfavorable. Lead one's life as if Krishna is my protector, Krishna is my maintainer, with humility and self-resignation. I'm a devotee of Krishna. I'm a member of this, this mission. This is my identity. Put this Sadaka Deya fully in place with Sharanagati. It said that Krishna is in love with Radha, and in the midst of that love and the love of the devotees of Braja, he forgets that he's God. So, how can we approach him? How will he hear our prayers when he doesn't even know he's God? And the ideal of Raghunuga Bhakti is to awaken the relationship with that Krishna. This idea is posed by, uh, this, this dilemma is posed by Vishwanath Chakrabhati Thakur in his Raghavartha Chandrika, what to do. And he suggests perhaps we, could, we should pray to the Paramatma, because the Paramatma is always cognizant, and uh, so he can hear our prayers, and in that form, Virginianan and Krishna can accept our prayers and so forth. But then he rejects that conclusion, saying this will not be very heartening and encouraging to the Raghunuga Sadakas. And then he explains that Krishna is omniscient, even in Braj, sometimes. He vacillates between being completely absorbed in love and forgetting himself and, and remembering that he's God. He never loses his omniscience, but it recedes to the background. Still, however, although Chakrabarti Thakur has made this point, the question remains, at what stage of sadhana, what kind of sadhana, what kind of prayers is Krishna actually going to hear personally? And Chikshastika Mahaprabhu has given us a clue to this when he says, Nadanam Najanam Nasundarim Kovitam Ba Jagadisha Kamari Mama Janmani Janmanishwari Bhavatat Bhakti Rahaitukitvai He says, Nadanam Najanam Nasundarim Kovitam Ba Jagadish Jagadish means Paramatma. The Jagad means the world. Isha means God, God of the world. He's praying to the Paramatma. What is he saying to the Paramatma? Oh, Paramatma, that whole area of your realm, your jurisdiction, the world, which is about Dhanam, Janam, Sundarim, Kavitam, about wealth, about followers, about um, relationships, about gathering material knowledge, desire for all these things. This is the realm of your your jurisdiction. You come to rule over this world of material desires and patiently reside in the hearts of those who have no interest in you. As I'm losing interest in those things, your presence is becoming apparent to me. And at the same time, I'm offering my pranam to you and saying, I have no desire in the area over which you have jurisdiction. So I have interest in, in, in another world.
not in the world which you oversee and patiently wait for people to arrive at this position of disinterest in the world of your jurisdiction and the development of interest in you, but uh, to ha have interest in, in, in the world of yourself proper, the world of uh, your lila. Not This is the Srishti lila, one of your lilas, the lila of creation. But what it's all about, that I'm not interested in anymore. So I offer my prayers to you, Jagadishwar, and I say I'm no longer interested in this. So it's a kind of a parting. He's moving away from the Jagadishwar and in the direction of his new self-interest, new conception of self. It's not based on desires and attachments. We have a sense of self that's based on our desires and attachments, by which we say, this is mine, and this is yours, and so forth, and we create that world of the mind. Our sense of identity, materially speaking, is based on our desires, our relationships. I'm a mother because I have a daughter. I'm a father because I have a... Uh, son or daughter, and a wife because I have a husband, a husband because I have a wife, a son because I have a father and mother. And these are all identities based on relationships and attachments, desires. Mahaprabhu is bidding farewell to that. Mama Janmani Janmani Ishware. Again, he uses the word Ishwar. But the second time he uses the word Ishwar, he says, Mama Janmani Janmani Ishware. Babatat Bhaktir Hoytukitve. I'm not interested in the world of your jurisdiction, Paramatma. I'm not interested in, in, in being removed from it either. I'm not interested in liberation. I'm interested in love. Love of you. Life after life in any condition. When he says Ishwar the second time, rather than Jagadishwar. Bhaktivinoda Thakur, he has rendered it as... Here it's obvious, actually, for the thoughtful devotee. Mahabharata was speaking to Pranishwar. Pranishwar. Now the, the Lord of my life. And what is his life? It has nothing to do with acquiring wealth and pursuing a relationship and mundane knowledge and followers and so forth. Nothing about the world. He wants, he's praying for Ahaituki Bhakti, pure Bhakti. This is Ruchi, the stage of Ruchi. This pure devotion is awakening in his heart. And so he's bidding farewell to the Paramatma and establishing a relationship with the Lord of his life, when the next verse he says, he identifies, it is Nanda Tanuja, the son of Nanda Maharaj. So this is a crossing stage in which previously, one is under the jurisdiction of the Paramatma. Really. Krishna is Bhagwan, Swami Bhagwan, he doesn't come to the world. Obviously, Paramatma is also aloof from the world, but much more concerned about it. Krishna comes here without concern for the world, really. He comes here for concern out of concern for his devotees who are not of this world and who compassionately have extended the, without of their love, they see other people as devotees also. Give them names like devotees. Think of them like that and, and relate to them like they're devotees. This is their generosity. And this way expand the idea of devotion. And Krishna takes their consideration, their generosity, into his own consideration. So in a sense, he, he comes for us also, the sadhakas. He comes for the advanced devotees in this world who, who have come under the influence of the surup shakti. Krishna is, is atmaram, self-satisfied. So 
He doesn't get satisfaction outside of himself. It means he derives satisfaction from, from within. And that means from within his Swarup Shakti. When that Swarup Shakti envelops a jiva, Krishna relates directly with him. Mahaprabhu said, Shreya Kairava Chandrikavataranam. This has its very kind of non-specific beginning in Ruchi. In Asakti, a little bit, he said like moon rays of benediction, cleansing the heart, becoming free from the great forest fire of material existence. One gets the soothing benediction rays of the of the moon of Sri Krishna Chandra, and one's heart blossoms like a white, like a white lotus, becomes free from any like not, not like a red lotus with any color, but pure, pure, and then a pure heart placed next to Krishna takes on the color of Krishna and sentiment for Krishna and so forth. So this is ruchi bhakti means something is coming in a non-specific way. Otherwise, what's coming? What are the benediction rays then? Bhava Bhakti is another stage, of course, where we graduate from Sadhana Bhakti, but Ruchi and Asakti, these are the last two stages of Sadhana Bhakti. And some influence of Sarup Shakti is starting to come. When the Gaudi is influenced by Sarup Shakti, when this begins to come in a non-specific way, in Bhava it comes in a specific way. In a non-specific way, one is in the stage of Ruchi, and at that stage one's Sharanagati is established. One is a Sharanagati. All these sixfold aspects of Sharanagati are in faith, are in place. Sharanagati is the outward manifestation of faith. And it's fully in place. So one is in touch directly with the world of faith. So it stands to reason, and Bhaktivinoda Thakura said it, that oh, for one who is a Sharanagata, he said, who follows this sixfold Sharanagati, who fully embraces this, the son of Nanda Maharaj hears his prayers. Do you follow? Yes. Krishna will hear the prayers, but at what of the sadhaka who wants this ideal of Raj Bhakti, Rag Bhakti, but at what stage, really? Let us be practical. Bhaktivinathakura has given some indication like this. So, the point is, everything in time, we should be a little patient. And if we are able to slay that Vatsasura, we will not and become mature and committed. Krishna Krishnakranj is pretty straightforward, it's pretty simple. Don't think there's a fast track. I go here and I'll, oh, I'll go so much faster that that guru will just touch me on the head and suddenly I, I, I'll be there. You have to do the work anywhere you go. You have to, therefore, Bhaktisiddhanta Sarasthi Thakur and his followers would emphasize at this point. I heard it so beautifully and so simply put, but so profoundly from Bhakti Vinod Puri, Bhakti Pramod Puri Maharaj once before he passed away. I was talking with him about Raghunuga Bhakti and about how some people are apparently eager for this. I read an interesting comment actually that uh, uh, attributed to Mukundadas, a famous commentator on Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu, who apparently said that lobha, greed for Rag Bhakti, is more rare than bhava in Vaidhi Bhakti. And when Rupa Goswami speaks about bhava in Raga Bhakti, what does he say? It is sudurlabha, not rare. 
but very rare. Dulabha means rare. It's too durlabha to attain that. Not that you won't attain, and you shouldn't be think, oh, God, it's so rare, I'll never attain. No, you you will attain. It's, but it's 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 not a cheap thing. So, uh, a well-known and universally accepted commentator from the past, Mukundu Asami, had said like this: the greed, which is the the kind of uh, qualification for for bhakti is more rare than bhav of bhakti. So it's not a cheap thing that we just decide today. Yes, I would like to be uh, the follower of uh, one of Radharani's handmaidens, and and Gurudev hasn't been giving me the details about that, and so <laughs> I'm going to run over here, and it's readily available, and any minute now, I, if I get that association, I'll. I'll, I'll certainly be in the kunj of, of Srimati Radharani and uh, leave all these vaidhi bhaktas behind. So this is the, the deceit, the duplicitousness, the uh, deceptiveness of Bhakasura. And we'll be well equipped to deal with that if we can slay this Bhatsasura. It may not, you may not be attacked by that necessarily, but you will be susceptible to that. Unless you can slay this Vatsasura. So Vatsasura, Pakasura, Krishna defeated them very easily. We should think of their le- these leaders along these lines. Hmm? The story comes to mind of Jagannathas Babaji. He was a Siksha guru of Bhaktivinoda Thakur. And some, I've heard the story, some people got initiated by Jagannathas Babaji. And then they asked for some instruction, and he told them, Grow Tulsi. Grow Tulsi. And so they were happily growing Tulsi, and then they told some, became known by some of their friends that they had been initiated by Jagannath Das Babaji. And so their friends said, Oh, he was initiated by Jagannath Das Babaji. So did he, you know, what, what, what kind of practices did he give you? And they said, Well, he told us to chant Hare Krishna and, and grow Tulsi. And then they, they, their friends became a little concerned. They told, That's all he told you? Maybe he didn't give you the full initiation. And so they, he didn't, that's all he told you. Hmm. And so they created some doubts, these people. And they went and, and they, they talked to Bhakti Vinod. They expressed their concerns. Bhakti Vinod Thakur told them, if you follow what Jagannath Babaji said, you will get everything. You don't have to worry. <laughs> yeah. He had given you very good advice. Yes? Yeah, he never said what Bhakti Puri Maharaj. Oh. Um, yes, Bhakti Vinod promoted pretty much about Raghunuga Bhakti. I was discussing with him and he said, he said, it was so nice. He said, Baba, he said, all I know is this, that without chanting the holy name offenselessly, there's no question of Rag Bhakti. There's no question of even being successful in Vaidhi Bhakti. So therefore I concentrate on this. It was to me just so that makes perfect sense. And this, of course, is a very strong emphasis of Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasthi Thakur. Chant the holy name purely. This is the emphasis of Mahaprabhu himself and Shikshastakam. You want to talk about what if you want to talk about traditional Gaudiya Vaishnavism, and we go to the core material and so forth. Nothing could be more core than Shikshastakam. Mahaprabhu is giving the whole idea there with emphasis on Kirtanam. And Smarnam will naturally follow Kirtanam. It is, with regard to Smarnam, which is what a lot of people like to pretend 
the modern-day Bakasuras, they want to pretend that, that, that they're engaging people in, in Smarnam. Uh, I wrote in my booklet once, Sri Guru Parampara, that first Marnam, then Smarnam would be a, a way of, uh, in a couple of words, um, capturing Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur's emphasis on his approach to Raghunuga Bhakti. And some people uh, ridiculed that, but actually, to be honest with you, that came from a, from a Babaji. <laughs> and so it was, Dr. Kapoor told me that. Such and such Babaji, Jagadish Das Babaji, used to say, first Maranam, then Smaranam. So, so some real Babaji will, Bhaktisiddhanta Sarasitaka was a real Babaji. He got up from that, from his bhajan, to distribute um, Krishna consciousness in a practical way, in a way that people, as we can see, can be caught up in and participate and so forth. So, emphasis on Nam. The idea being that it's one thing to think about Krishna as another thing really to meditate upon Krishna. This is brought out in Brihad Bhagavatamrita to have this, the soul touching Krishna uh, unencumbered by the mind uh, without the mind being in between, so to speak. This is smarnam. And this is really much to do with the, the sadhana of, of, of Baba Bhakti, internal sadhana, where it comes naturally. And there's no better way to, to capture and, uh, so to speak, and arrest the mind than by kirtan. So smarnam naturally follows kirtanam. If you do kirtan properly, then in time, naturally it will, it will drift into Smarnam, and the Leelas will, will begin to manifest. Not that we, when we were discussing Krishna Leela, not that we shouldn't discuss it and use our minds to think about it and so on and so forth. But a real life of Smarnam and be, to become qualified for that, that will come from Shravanam and Kirtanam, no doubt about it. Anything else? Oh, Marnam, by the way, means death. I said first Marnam, Marnam, then Smarnam. Well, maybe some of you didn't. Catch what that meant. It means first let the ego die, give a death to the ego, then there's real possibility of meditation. First marnam, then smarnam. <laughs> yes? Well, you said we have to do kirtan properly. What did you mean by that? How, how do we do kirtan properly? Oh, I don't mean it. Maybe you were doing it properly, but proper emphasis on kirtan, not, a, not uh, that... Uh, Kirtan is sadhana, kirtan is sadhya, kirtan is everything. It's the supreme form of practice. There's no superior practice. There's no superior sadhana than in kirtanam. Some people like to leave a kirtan, that's, you know, for the beginners, but smarnam, this is the real thing, something like this. And then they leave aside the kirtanam, leave aside preaching and so forth. And, and in the name of smarnam, they simply intellectualize about uh, esoteric truths of Gaudiya Vaishnavism and and so on. So, what I just mean is that we should put emphasis on the importance of kirtan and, and a dynamic kirtan, like Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur made a campaign for preaching. So we should assist the preaching. We should see our Gurudev is preaching. We should participate in, a, in, a, in an assisting role. Play the drum for him. Play the cartel. Assist in the, in the campaign. I mean, metaphorically, I'm speaking. Sing loudly. Something like that. Let your voice be heard. What else? Yes. 
The death of the ego sounds bad. Does it? Sounds good to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we were discussing it with Brigham and Guru Nishta today. What, what does it really mean? It's something that eluded us, at least me and Brigham. Well, it really means that we have an identity based on attachments, and we have to identify that acknowledge that, that this identity is based on attachments and it's really identity that's here today and gone tomorrow and I shouldn't just center my whole life around it but I should I should acknowledge that and begin to cultivate an, an identity that, that endures and that is a serving identity in relation to Krishna and Krishna manifests to us in our lives most prominently in the form of Guru so we should start to identify ourselves as in relation to our, our Gurudev as servants and to what his life is about and what he's doing and try to participate and assist in that and so forth. This is by positively cultivating and establishing our spiritual ego or identity, our sadhaka deha, then the other identity is put in perspective and, and gradually retired. That's the idea. Again, that you know, material ego, material identity, is all just based on desires, attachments to sense objects. And you could just, just think about it and dissect it and see that this, this is all it really is. So, you know, it's not much to kill something that really doesn't, doesn't exist. In, in one sense, it, it's obstinate and, 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 and whatnot, but there's not that much substance to it. It will die anyway. In one sense, of its own accord, this is the point. Your sense of identity is doomed. It, it will not endure. And so it's glorious to acknowledge that, to read the writing on the wall, so to speak, and, and instead of just being, ignoring it. And so this is, uh, this is the idea. Does that help? Yes, it, it helps. It's just like... We are discussing about making this leap from this material identity to the spiritual identity. Yeah, I think that it has much to do with just identifying in a responsible way to be a member of our Gurudev's entourage and so forth. And, and so this is where my life is centered around. And this is the this is the, the, the best way to dismantle our false ego is to cultivate this proper ego. Then we'll kind of fall aside naturally. Just to go and try to dissect that whole material ego and kill it, that, that is a, not our approach, per se. We have a positive approach to doing away with the negative, that doing away, removing the negative is a byproduct of the positive approach. But then again, we don't make a leap that we identi identify the form in which Krishna has come to us as a guru, we identify there in our sadhaka deya, and then by proper identification, as a sadhaka, this is my family, this is where I belong, this is my, the, the hub uh, around which my universe revolves, Guru Vani, the words of the Guru, and so forth. Then our relationship, inner relationship with Krishna will naturally awaken. As much as we put our sadhaka day in place, then there's scope for the siddha day to come, into, come to bear, which is the ultimate sense of uh, identity. Not that 
when we awaken an identity with Krishna, therefore our, our identification with the Guru is somehow dissolved or something like that. No, it's all, a, it's all part of it. Anything else? Yes. Continuing on the same theme, sometimes it seems that, that uh, our material identity and our identity in uh, Gurudev's uh, association, there seems to be many corresponding things. So is it is that a problem? Is it, is it, is, does that mean that we're kind of hanging on to, to things from, from our material life? Or, or Not sure if I know exactly what you mean, but... Uh, I, I'm thinking, thinking for example, uh, well, we were joking about Kamalaksha being like a stern teacher. So, so also here, he's, he's like, not a stern teacher, but, but like giving out orders and, mm-hmm. and like this... I think that the answer is that our material sense of self and our and relative concerns will often run in, in a parallel with our the absolute and ultimate reality. And there, there need not be any great contradiction, at least in terms of the Sadaka Deha, and for that matter, even in terms of the Siddha Deha. As we develop, there may be things in our ordinary identity that can be traced to the fact that we have a particular identity in Krishna. So there is kind of a... Uh, they're not entirely, you know, bifurcated, separate in every respect. Advanced devotee can see, oh, even that we have... someone may have a certain disposition, certain things about them, that is based more on their spirituality, attributed more to their ultimate spirituality than it is to their material personality, although even without any Krishna conscious involvement, that was that was manifest. So it's not everything will be will be thrown away necessarily. Hmm? But in a more general sense then, things that are tendencies and propensities and so forth and in our material life in general may run along on a parallel with the absolute, but invariably at certain points in in our progress there will be a divergence between the relative and the absolute. And it's at those times, if we're to progress, we have to choose the absolute. And with the sense that in doing so, I will be able to live with myself. I'll be able to live with Krishna, really. My real sense, my real self is, is tied to an identification with him. Even though, relatively speaking, it is it means a departure. It may be a departure from friends, from occupation from whatever that that may call upon us for so it's fine we can just run along on parallel lines like this and our material propensities intensity tendencies are used in krishna service and and it is you know part of our even our spiritual krishna conscious sadhaka deha identity in a sense but whenever the call of the absolute makes itself known and says Mm, there's a departure here, and then we have to go in that direction. That takes courage, but if each time we do that, we find, oh, the results are good, this is good, I can, I can look back and say, that was a difficult decision to make, but I made the right make, I made the right decision. And that will foster then the capacity to make the right decision again and move in that direction. Does that help? Okay, we'll stop there. <laughs>